the meds have some serious side effects and the cannabis, we don't know everything, but we've had gobs of people using for decades now since the 60s. Mm -hmm. We've had quality improvements. And since that 1996 law, we have quality control. And we've really studied what it does for patients. And I think I'm here to tell you, I have my happiest patients are those that got off the opioids or other pharmacological agents, quite frankly, whether it's an antidepressant or even just the naproxen. People are happy to get off their pills and be able to use their cannabis products. And again, to mix and match. Most of my happiest patients have a couple tools in their toolkit, as I'm sure you encounter in the retail and our audience in the industry knows. It's not just one, it's getting that whole learning curve down. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and Shada, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to meet your audience. I'm Dr. Morris. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Duber Medical, and I'm a huge cannabis proponent. Cannabis as a medicine, I think, has really been a game changer. I have had the luxury of, again, always being a fan, a supporter, but I was already a physician in California in 1996 when I voted for that first medical cannabis law in this country. been supporting it ever since. I'm thrilled to see how far it's come in the intervening years. Like yourself, I'm a cannabis expert. I go to conferences where I teach. I teach patients. Our role, Duber Medical, is in Texas, but we're also in 10 other states. And I think we know some of the challenges and unique features, not just in Texas, but each state has its own program. You know, we're a group of doctors who really spend most of our time teaching our patients the safe use because we have this whole range of products now. And even in the last few years, we have this new appreciation for combining the CBD and the THC, which historically prior to that, we made it a big deal to separate them. And it turns out when you put them together, the brain receptors really like it. And so you have more medicinal options. So it's really exciting for me to be on this side of it. I was a neurosurgeon in private practice for many years when I voted for that first law or over the years since then. And I've also practiced emergency medicine. So it's really nice to be on this side of the fence, which I call happy medicine. I've been in practice before, during, and after the opioid crisis. It was such a waste. And this is so much safer. The safety margin is just amazing. The therapeutic success is amazing. So those are the factors that drew me into it. In terms of how to get to be a physician at this level, if there are any physicians in the audience, reach out to us. But short of that, I mean, you are talking about cannabis college won't get you to this, my particular job. But thank goodness we have cannabis college because the products that we have and the science that we have and, you know, the botanists, the PhD level botanists and the microbiologists working in the labs and the testing, that all contributes to how far we've come in this safety. So I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different people's careers. And I think that it's only going to continue to get better. Texas, while it's not a fully robust program yet, it's really seen some evolution in a very short time. And, you know, this past spring, there was some action, didn't go all the way through, but in the right direction. So I know it's coming. And in fact, you know, 38 states plus the District of Columbia now today have some form of medical cannabis. 
wonderful insight already being shared first off the gate. I am like, my brain is like, where do I go? What do I ask for next? Because you said a couple of things. One, you were talking about CBD and THC. Obviously today it's very common, the entourage effect. You can't go into an adult use regulated dispensary without seeing a couple products <laughs> introducing multiple cannabinoids. Certainly on the hemp side, they're throwing all the cannabinoids together. So I want to kind of take back, you know, to 1996, or maybe it's a little bit before that, the precursor of that, obviously being in California. So this may be like a couple part question. Hopefully you're tracking with me. What has that evolution been like from your perspective? Was it always adopted from a medical peer perspective? And I guess the caveat I'll introduce being in Texas just in five years, you know, on the hemp side of the conversation and certainly inching towards a a more open medical marijuana program. When we first got into the industry, there was a lot of, you know, separation. The medical professionals didn't want to validate CBD. They certainly didn't know enough about it, obviously. Thank you uh, for nailing it there. Sorry. <laughs> but, but true. So you have like kind of that resistance to it in, in the last, you know, five years of, of us, us at least being in business in Austin, Texas, I get more doctors sending people in. Maybe they aren't going as far as endorsing or obviously there's patient client confidentiality. So a lot of times the patients aren't able to actually express to me who their doctor is, but they're saying, Hey, my doctor has acknowledged that cannabis is a fit for me for X, Y, or Z. And so I'm seeing that bridge being built. And of course, your side on the medical marijuana side is actually a doctor's recommendation referral. So I understand there's some nuances there, but just in terms of what you're seeing in the industry, obviously there wasn't that adoption and kind of what has that been like? Is it there wasn't a lot of adoption or support until the last five years that CBD and hemp's been legal? Or was it starting to happen kind of before hemp's legalization? I'm just curious what the credibility is in the medical world. I would think it would be a waste of time for us to discuss the first two decades of support for medicine. Okay. We're really, unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigma out there, but there's also, you kind of nailed it in your question that one of the big things is that doctors are not comfortable with what they don't know. And it is so non-traditional and there is no easy way to read a book and know everything about cannabis to be able to talk to your patients. So we still today in 2023 see that it's not the regular, it's very few regular family doctors prescribing it for their patients. Right. It really is an industry of a subspecialties, but the medical board's regulated as well. In different states, we have different requirements that we have, hoops we have to jump through to be able to demonstrate our knowledge and do the extra regulatory work that's involved because of the whole state, federal, legal, illegal. So you don't see... It's not that many doctors doing it unless they're in an environment in a group that supports it. And so that's why our group, we like to make sure that all that administrative stuff is done right the first time, but in the background. So we love to teach our patients. And that's what we like to focus our appointments on. It's a very common question we get from patients or very common complaint. I asked my doctor, but they won't. So the good news is it's far less doctors saying don't, just they won't. So that's a big change. The other thing is, We are really seeing subgroups of huge support because of the success, because of how well cannabis works for PTSD. We now have mental health professionals, psychiatrists that are 
absolutely supportive. They won't prescribe it, but they want their patients who use cannabis to be in a medically supervised program. GI doctors are seeing it work for, and I'm sure you're seeing this in your shop, patients with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel, works fabulous, especially like the CPGs, you know, so getting ahead of myself a little bit. But so you have diseases where it really works. And so patients, doctors are saying, yeah, that's good. You can try that. You should try that. Or they're open-minded enough to hear from their doctors. Chronic pain management. Some chronic pain doctors are very happy. Others are still, I'll cut you off of your opioids if you test positive for THC, which to me is just absurd. But I, I know so that range, that. that range is still there. There are still a lot of closed minded, but you know, the fact of the matter is it is getting better. It has gotten a lot better in the last few years. I think the CBD legalization in 2018 helped in that it focused showing some other sides. It picked up the efficacy. And again, I think putting the two products together has really helped the medicinal value. I just, I can tell you that it's not good enough, not fast enough, the general medical support and response. That being stated, it wasn't there at all before, but yeah, there's still stigma. I mean, there are still, every so often I have another doctor that I literally have to tell them something to the effect of, no, actually our company does not sell joints to your children's in high school. Right. We're professionals. We're trying to yeah, that's have not professional what we conversation. Do. And so, so that still occurs, sadly, mm-hmm. even in the modern era. The flip side is those patients who've had the stigma for decades, once they come across, they really appreciate it more. We have a large population of patients that are older and they used cannabis in the 70s recreationally. They never touched it again. And now they're retired on the golf course and aches and pains. And boy, they take that gummy and success. And then the next thing you know, the other three from the foursome are in the office wanting to learn about gummies and how to, you know, what do, what is CBN? How do I sleep? And so it's really exciting to see it, but I'm sad to say that uh, my profession is not at all where it needs to be yet, but it's, it is getting better. And I'm thrilled that it's here, but it's not good enough. Yeah, no, of course. And I think it is just building that momentum. And obviously to your very like a spot on point, it just, they don't know what they don't know, which you also brought up, you know, obviously the opioid crisis, which is still going on. And obviously too, there's a lot of shows that are coming out now to kind of put it more in the foresight of things, of conversations, certainly. So it's making me want to kind of parallel a conversation with you because you've existed in that space, kind of like you said, before, during, after, et cetera, whatever. My understanding, and I caveat this with, I am not a medical professional. I do not (laughs) know how any of this, you know, functions on that end. But just again, from watching some of those shows, what is it? Painkiller, Dope Sick, or some of those shows right now. It's like these doctors are obviously trying to, in a perfect world, resolve the problem for the patient. And so these are my tools in my toolkit. And this, you know, pill does that. And that pill does that. And that exercise and this diet change does X, Y, or Z. Those pills are being promoted by the company, I'm assuming. And so because cannabis is in this weird nebulous, I'm trying to guess get at, because obviously Duber is very focused on education. And so you have multiple facets with the consumer or with the patient, right? You're advocating that this is something that they could benefit from. You're then educating them on how to use it, why it's beneficial to them. But on the brand side, again, knowing what I know about the industry and maybe using Texas as an example, there's only three license holders. So the patients are really limited on what actual uh, products they have. And then in, in a you know weird side world, if you boil it down, 
I don't want to say cannabis is cannabis, but you know, 10 milligrams of THC, 10 milligrams of THC, pretty similar structure from a functional perspective. So how does the marketing of this, because I don't want to compare cannabis to opioids by any means, but again, subbing it as something to prescribe to a patient, how does that education happen? Is it the customer is to your point or the patient, I should stop saying customer, I'm in the retail side of things. (laughs) The patient, like you're saying, it's, hey, my buddy is feeling better and we're out golfing and it's word of mouth. Is it on the the medical professional side where y'all are going into environment situations, having conversations like, are you having to do a lot of outreach marketing? Are people just finding out about medical cannabis and coming to you? How are these brands actually promoting their products? Are they doing a very similar to the opioids of, hey, I've got the best opioid, I've got the best cannabis strain, and here's my teddy bear, and here's you know my box lunch for the office today? Like, How is that ecosystem unfolding, if that question makes sense. Well, that's, there's really, you know, those pharmaceutical visits anyway with free lunch had gone away, you know, a long time ago. One of the problems you mentioned in marketing, you are fully aware of how many restrictions you have marketing in the cannabis space at all versus normal marketing, right? Add to that the different layer that physicians are professionals that are licensed and we have a whole different set of ethical regulations as well as state-by-state regulations. And so we really aren't allowed to advertise in many states or in many formats that people consider customary. Most physicians right now are so overbooked and overworked, it's very difficult for us to get them just as a generic audience. What I will tell you, you mentioned the education. That's, you know, what we do. I'm part of the professional associations in one of our leading states, and I'm actually at the grassroots level trying to develop it in two new states. But in one of our states, what we do in Ohio, the Medical Marijuana Physicians Association, is we host town halls. And I'm one of the speakers. We've had So we had a recent event where it was a roundtable. We had about 60 participants that were physicians that came. Oh, cool. Next, we're doing town halls where we're doing outreach. But it really is you're tapping into an audience that's already interested. We cannot cold call and really broadly educate. There's no forum for that yet. But what we have instead are because our doctors in our group, we're all such believers and we all came, you know, we all came with years of experience. None of our docs are fresh out of school. So we have our networks and I'm a neurosurgeon. So our fraternity is a little smaller than some others. And I have pain management doctors that I've worked with for years. I also have ER doctors, so I know who to reach out to. We mentioned earlier the support of specialties. We have some Suboxone clinics that have told their patients, if you're going to test positive, you need to have a card. And if you don't know where you know to go, get one that's reputable. So, But even they are not allowed to only mention our name. They're allowed to have yeah. a referral list kind of like you. So we do make it a point that we do direct outreach anytime you mention, you know, if a doctor is referred to us, we don't call them right away to rat out the patient. You know, even if we have HIPAA consent, what we do is quarterly, we have a spreadsheet. We call all of our docs quarterly that we know have referred and we offer them marketing materials. And we have a brochure that's specific to that setting in a doctor's office versus those that we give for dispensaries that are, you know, in in states where there are more. Now, in Texas, all three have been very cordial to Dr. McKay, our Texas doctor, and to our leadership as well. But again, I consider that the Texas program is still in its infancy and it's going to... It's so close when it's going to turn a corner. So I'm sorry if I got a little off topic, but I think I got most of the question in terms of the physician's attitudes and where we're going. No, that answered it. And again, I was kind of a question without an explicit 
place for it to go. It's so new, right? We don't really know how to handle it as a group of medical professionals. I'm sure you're paving the way and you're having hard conversations. And like you shared earlier, you have peers that are like, WTF are you doing, Dr. Morris? This is crazy. Why would you risk all this you know, work oh, that you've done to that's... go out on a limb and talk about cannabis? But it is making progress, like you said. And so it it is just, again, by no means do I want to compare cannabis to anything in an opioid category. However, when it gets into the reasons people are taking cannabis, pain being a very large, you know, precursor. Pain, anxiety, insomnia. Yeah. It's it's like those are- And they're interrelated. Yes. And people want relief. Once you get that good night's sleep with your cannabis, you wake up feeling so much better. You can tackle more and it becomes a positive feedback. The other thing is as a patient, it's the ultimate patient-centric medicine. So you can individualize it. And once you have it dialed in, it's really more effective and you end up using lower amounts and you save money. And so- that's, you know, we were talking earlier about the opioids. It's a very different positive feedback cycle right. versus the painkiller escalation. Let's start with the anti-inflammatories and the Tylenol till you're starting to fry your kidney and your liver. Then you're going up on the narcotics. Then you're getting your side effects. Then you're continuing to go up on your doses because you're not getting enough pain relief, more side effects. And then it's a vicious cycle. Not to mention what the withdrawal is. Or from benzos compared to if you are a long-term cannabis user and you decide to take a holiday, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a very, again, the safety. If you're an adult, now, of course, it is possible for a child. I'm going to exclude pediatrics, but for an adult, it is extremely difficult to overdose on cannabis products. And if you do, it's a relative overdose. It's not going to kill you. Right. You're going to have hours of misery. GI predominantly, some neuro, some somnolence, maybe a little heart racing, definitely going to flip your mind out a bit, but temporary. And, you know, and you have to work to do that. I mean, you really have to drink your whole bottle of tincture. You have to eat that whole candy bar, that 10 pack of gummies. So it's not something that is common. And so again, from a physician standpoint, I think it's infinitely safer. And something else, you know, you're right to a degree. It's we're taught a pill does this, we're supposed to do that. But the opioid crisis was horrible before, you know, again, before I was a neurosurgeon and when people had surgery, they were supposed to get better. And if they didn't get better and their pain got worse, it's my job to figure out why and try and do something. Now, there are times I couldn't figure it out, but the dogma became, I'll never forget the year I took the mandatory class that pain is the fifth vital sign. Excuse my French, who the heck came up with that? Really? Everything else about a vital sign is vital and it's objective and it's quantifiable and it's repeatable. Pain is subjective, completely subjective. And the proposals of what to treat it with, again, even if you don't go all the way to opiates, you know, we're now realizing even over-the-counter doses of ibuprofen over the years or other anti-inflammatories are going to fry your kidneys. Even therapeutic doses of Tylenol. Now we're questioning how much of that we can give pregnant women or non-pregnant. You know, so the meds have some serious side effects and the cannabis, we don't know everything, but we've had gobs of people using for decades now since the 60s. Mm-hmm. We've had quality improvements. And since that 1996 law, we have quality control. And we've really studied what it does for patients. And I think I'm here to tell you, I have my happiest patients are those that got off the opioids or other pharmacological agents, quite frankly, whether it's an antidepressant or even just the 
nap percent. People right. are happy to get off their pills and be able to use their cannabis products. And again, to mix and match. Most of my happiest patients have a couple tools in their toolkit, as I'm sure you encounter in the retail and our audience in the industry knows. It's not just one, it's getting that whole learning curve down. Well, those are certainly things that I feel like I talk about a lot. And so what you're saying is resonating with me because it isn't a one size fits all. And unfortunately, I think the traditional Western medicine approach of see doctor, express, you know, symptoms, doctor prescribes pill. It's a one size fits all allegedly. And then it's just this expiration of it's not enough. You need more and you're just increasing a dose and it's dehumanizing to your point too, which I feel really personally, our pain is all subjective. My pain is going to be a completely different pain to the next guy or gal next to me. And that has both very heavy for me as a business owner who's dealing with chronic pain, which is kind of, you know, part of my story of being in the industry, but also heavy as, as an operator who's hearing these stories of people who are struggling with X, Y, or Z ailments, symptoms, frustrations, you know, for whether it's, it, I can't sleep for a week to I can't sleep for the past six years. And you're just oh my God, I want to give you some relief. I want to help you. I want to educate you. I want to connect you to a product, right? And so you said something really interesting that I want to drill in a little bit more. Just talking about you as a doctor, your team as medical professionals, educating yourself. Obviously, we touched on CBG, CBN, very high level. For the most part, people listening, we're familiar with those cannabinoids, (laughs) you know, minor cannabinoids, psychoactive cannabinoids. I really think hemp helped crack the door for those conversations to happen much faster than they maybe would have had we not. And so how do you educate yourself to know, like I was just going through my inbox and I saw some medical group in the cannabis space is promoting, you know, CBDV. What is CBDV? Do we care about CBDV? How do we use CBDV? And so in my, you know, awareness, there's maybe 15 cannabinoids right now that are in the market to some extent, but maybe a fraction of those eight to 10 are actually productized, or maybe it's less five to seven are productized. You got your CBD, your THC, THCV, you know, Delta A versus Delta 9, CBN. But it's like, what's next? And I think as an operator and as a consumer myself, sometimes I'm like, we don't need to pay attention to that one, especially from the hemp side. I think there's you know, the synthetic or the synthesized versus the naturally occurring. But getting into some of the exploration, CBG maybe being a great one, we've known about it, right? But it's not as, maybe it's more popular today than it was five years ago when CBD and hemp was first legalized. But as a, I was a medical patient in Texas. I, with my car accident, I qualified under PTSD for our state. And, you know, I was limited. My, my doctor could only prescribe me CBD or THC. I was limited by how much cannabinoids I could have, right? I was limited by my consumption form factor. So I couldn't get anything smokable. My edibles were capped at 10 milligrams, but it was CBD and THC. They weren't prescribing me any other cannabinoids. And so how do you navigate that to educate yourself? How do you make those decisions? Are the medical marijuana brands you're working with providing products for some of those other cannabinoid categories? And kind of how does that work to expand your knowledge of what tools are out there, so to speak, to then bring into your toolkit to then pass on to your patients? Well, I will tell you, I am absolutely not brand loyal. And that's been long term as a physician. I, when I was doing, you know, spine surgery, I didn't buy, use an implant because I wanted one specific brand for one specific rep. I used what was best for the patient, but I was factored in costs. You know, if something was better, but triple the price, probably not worth it, just like you would do in your own home. So in my role as a physician, I really don't look at the brands because 
I want to look at what you alluded to, the components, the ingredients. I tell the patients, I'm going to teach you how to read the label and the ingredients. And so to me, it's not, it, to me, it's a couple of things. I've got to stay on top of the studies, but I don't want the, you know, and that's the hard part. There aren't good studies. They're anecdotal. They're, they're retrospective observational. You know, they're not high quality, double blind perspective and they're not right. going to be in cannabis. However, you know, obviously I come to the table with a bias already knowing it's got goodness. So to me, I'm learning about the flavors of the goodness and I read a lot. I read a ton, but it's not just what I read. The science has to make sense to me, like when we started combining the plants. But then I remember when I first learned that, yeah, that sounds really great. How CBD augments, you know, makes your THC last longer. Your THC activates your CBD. That rocks. And I was like, uh-oh. My patients didn't like CBD. They all came to get their cannabis card in an era when everything was segregated. And then I started paying attention across the video screen. And day after day, patient after patient clearly taught me the trends that work because patients are experimenting. So to me, mm-hmm. it's more hearing, you know, from multiples. You know, for example, without question, I can clearly recommend a sleep combination, an indica plus a CBN in an edible or tincture superior product for sleep, regardless of the etiology of your sleep disturbance. So across the board, whether you're a cancer patient, PTSD patient, that's going to help you for sleep, that combination. But it's really exemplified by hearing day after day patients who otherwise have nothing in common being able to tell me that. So I will tell you that matters a lot to me before I give further advice to our patients. Most of our staff and most of our physicians are cardholders. So most of us have knowledge, background, experience, and we're motivated to learn more. And I think that's the thing. You learn when you want to, you know, so um, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. You know, we're also, again, we're experienced physicians. So we're used to reading studies all the time, but again, we're also experienced in, Hey, don't just keep giving out Percocet because it ain't doing shit. You know, you got to just change gears. And so there's no perfect, there's no perfect resource right now, but again, that's getting better. The more states that have it, the larger amounts of data are being accumulated. And one day it will go federal, although I'm cynical about throwing government. I think the next 12 states will one at a time do it all before the feds get in gear, but that will give it to, that will give it to more patients. So I'm okay with that, you know, but the more it is, the less stigma, the better for patients. And, you know, I think that the natural is the opiate use is going to go down. The benzos are going to go down. The NSAIDs, the anti-inflammatories are going to go down. The muscle relaxants, the psychotropics. You know, how many of our patients love that sleep edible versus even an over-the-counter melatonin versus the Ambien Lunesta Extreme? Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. 
Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp-derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. You made an interesting thought pop up in my head that maybe this is a hot topic, so feel free to you know answer however you see fit. Because you come from the world of medicine, and you're also on the forefront of the intersection of that with cannabis, again, from what I know, especially as a marketer, And especially with the history of cannabis, I think when I was just a consumer and then I got into the industry and I was like, wait, this became a schedule one drug because of what? Like, how did we get here? And really looking at some of the competing industries and big pharma being big pharma. Do you think they will, we will ever get that full adoption for cannabis if it is going to cost big pharma their dollar signs? Of keeping, you know, us on the the, the rat wheel of their hold. It's even more than big pharma, though. I really think that one. I th- I really do believe the states will all pass it first before it, there will be adequate pressure at the federal level. The federal problem, you know, not to be conspiracy theories or anything, and not to miss an opportunity to bash big pharma. It's there, but it's never, you know, we as physicians are being rewarded to write for that pill. It's more what you described earlier that that's all some of them know. I think it's much more than that because, again, at Duper, like we're a doctor's office, so you can. We don't accept insurance per se because we're in the cannabis sphere, right? But and it's federally legal, and we're interstate company. But if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can use that because we're a doctor's Mm -hmm. appointment. Now, the patients of ours that have done it have all checked with their employers before, but we, when we looked on our side, there was no reason we couldn't. If you think about it a minute, once it's federal, that changes everything, not just big pharma. That means your doctor's appointments have to be paid for to talk about cannabis, right? Which I'm sure a lot of people would love. I, cause no. And what comes next, right? Your product. Your fo- you've got prescription plan coverage, right? Some degree. Why can't I buy my ounce with my $20 copay? I have a note for my doctor, right? I think that's all. It's so entrenched. It's going to upset so many apple carts that yes, I think it's going to be slow. But if you'd asked me the question 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been as optimistic as I am today. Sure. I just think, you know, I don't, and most of the states when they pass medical within a few years, they pass rec. And, you know, I get some people that get nervous about that, or I get patients that tell me, well, if it goes rec, I don't need to renew my card. Wrong. I could talk to you for an hour about that. But you know, you still get a lot of benefits and any state that passes rec after they pass medical, they build in financial and other benefits for the patient. So it's always a tiered privilege. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, ultimately when it's covered by insurance, you're going to be wanting to get it through this way. Yeah, absolutely. No, those are great points. And yeah, again, I don't think it's fair to just be anti-big pharma, just like I'm not anti-multi-state operators. It's (laughs) the industry is way too new and too immature to pick a side at this point. 
But because I've gotten involved in the advocacy, in fact, I'm going to D.C. in a couple of weeks to go lobby with our hemp group to deal with what Congress is or isn't doing, regulating hemp at a federal level. And it's everybody wants the accountability. But to your point, observation, it's going to be a lot slower pace. And, and I got to go lobby last year and we're sitting in these meetings with not the representative or the senator, but their you know, junior person. And it's 20 minutes and they're taking notes. And you're like, I really need you to vote on this bill. So that encourages Congress to take action. And they're like, I don't even know what CBD is. So no, I'm not going to, you know, it's just, there's so many more other fish, so to speak, in the you know the political world to make everything function at a federal and a state level. And so it's not to say that I'm not a hopeful person, but similarly, my my tune has changed slightly since being in the industry the last five years. I'm like, yeah, I don't think we're getting federal legalization anytime soon because it's right. going to take this and this to happen yes. for it to make sense. It's not like you flip a light switch, we'll figure it out later. Yes, a little bit of that's going to happen. You're not going to have everything sorted out before you do, but you just illuminated, obviously, the a little bit of the web around this that's going to have to give and take for it to actually open up in that capacity. But you brought up a couple other things too that I wanted to highlight. One, talking about obviously the state-to-state variations, I think is interesting just as like a, a foundational you know point for this. Because like I mentioned in Texas, I'm limited with what I can access as a patient versus what you can access in Ohio versus what you can access in Colorado. But then there is the level of and you touched on it a little bit too, right? Are there reports? Are there papers? Are there studies that have been done for my ailment or my reason for why I think that cannabis could benefit me? And then I think the output of that is the question mark that I'm hopefully trying to get some insight from you on. Two things come to mind. One, you touched on, you know, pregnancy. We don't know long-term effects of some of these things that happen with our bodies. It's like, for me, I'll use myself as the example. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman. I was in a life-altering car accident in 2015. I was hit by a vehicle as a pedestrian, fractured my pelvis and my sacrum. I was on opioids. I was getting steroid injections regularly for about six months post-accident, and I was still in chronic pain. And when I went to my doctor and I got my scan done, they said, you still have a tear in your sacrum. Would you like surgery? Or you can live with your pain. And at that time, I had already started to get my body moving again. I became active again because I was sedentary after the accident. Didn't want to move my body. Also, hello, broke my pelvis. Very uncomfortable to move my body. (laughs) But that journey really put it into focus again for me and what my pain is that I'm dealing with that I could have surgery. I don't need to have surgery. So I don't want to take that risk and open up Pandora's box of what repercussions that could have. So now I'm back at square one. Do I keep taking my opioids or do I kick the opioids and do I do something else? And so at that point, that's where my mom knew that I was consuming a lot of pot and had heard about CBD and wanted to introduce CBD into my cannabis routine. And so you know, long story short, that became our entry point. But I'm now wanting to have kids and my conversations with my doctors in Texas that are open to cannabis, but maybe they're not, you know, cannabis doctors and just all the people I talk to, it's, well, we don't know. We don't know about breastfeeding and having cannabis in your system. Well, we don't know about, you know, having a pregnancy and bearing a child with cannabis in your system. And I have People who say they've done it and their babies are happy and healthy. But when you talk to the medical professional side of the equation, it's just we don't know. And I think that for me is something that I'm trying to get more clarity on. And then the other example is, you know, this qualm of, and you kind of touched on it, but I wanted a little bit more insight. It's legal for me to consume because I'm a patient. I have my medical card or my prescription, but then my employer can still, you know, or my pain doctor can still, because of the way that it's 
federal status or the private entity status, they still have the right to say, well, even though you're legally a patient and you're legally consuming, you still have to abide by X, Y, or Z laws. And so I'm just curious how you handle that conversation. So I know they're not explicitly the same direction, but just trying to unpack and understand how you handle some of these conversations and and using myself as the guinea pig, because I'm just curious if anything's changed since I've talked to a medical professional about some of these things that are very real patient questions. To me, my doctor right now is like, I could put you on pain medicine to nerve block because I'm having nerve pain. So I could put you on a nerve blocker, but you want to get pregnant soon. So I don't want to put you on a nerve blocker. And I'm like, well, I can't sleep. So I'm on cannabis every night. And so to me, I'm like, have a baby or stay pain-free. Like I don't have other options, right? And I know I'm not alone. And unfortunately, the second question about the employment, I have more good news to talk about. So let's knock out the sad news. The reality is, as a neurosurgeon, there's nothing out there that's going to reassure me ever for any pregnant or breastfeeding woman. I'm sorry. I'm not going to take a chance giving you professional advice that it's okay. And I can give you a little bit of background to that. Well, one, I'm a neurosurgeon and I'm not an obstetrician. I do know that there are obstetricians that will in select cases, that's the one time I have seen personal physicians write for cannabis for their patients Mm. because no other doctor is going to write it for a pregnant patient. And in general, even as a neurosurgeon, I will not do anything on a pregnant patient without doc one's okay. We have, you know, I have in my career had to go to labor and delivery because the baby's being monitored and the brain monitor has to be put in and the ICU nurse from neuro has to come over separate. So- Mommy, baby, that biosphere has to be maintained. So, but it's not just that we're hard nosed about cannabis itself. If you look at how we look at any drugs in pregnancy and lactation, the scale is A to D. A is okay. D is don't prescribe. There, and then B and C. So A, B, C, D, right? The ones we prescribe are B's because guess what? There's not a single medicine out there that's an A. So there's no precedent for any doctor being comfortable giving you that. An obstetrician, though, seeing their patient with hyperemesis, yes, I've seen them give their patients because they don't want you on Zofran month after month. They don't want you to have the electrolyte shifts and dehydrate the baby. But there isn't enough known. So unfortunately there, I have to agree, you have hard choices. Flip side of that, after you have the baby and when you're done breastfeeding, How fabulous are cannabis products for the young mom in terms of the anxiety, in terms of the ability to just de-stress and deal with the crying child, sleep and still wake up and hear the child versus the pain. There are so many benefits. So I do encourage the pregnant moms, there's a time you're holding back, but you know what? During that time, you're not having wine either. You're a... Right. So, but I'm speaking as a woman who's never had a baby or pregnancy. So, okay, maybe easier for me to throw stones. But that I see the goodness at the end and you get that back. Now, the flip side for the employer question is well, really, really quick on the pregnancy. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I think this comes up sometimes too. I had someone DM me, not any, not my products, not any products I'm familiar of explicitly, but they were in Texas and the wife was prescribed CBD. I don't know if it was full spectrum or pure, but as we all know, even pure could spike something. You just never know how it's manufactured and your body is whatever. She was delivering the baby. And CPS got involved because she tested positive for THC. Would that just have you seen that from the medical cannabis side of things again? And maybe it ties into the employer where you have a medical card. I know this lady didn't, so that's not the exact example, but that question gets brought up to me a lot of, 
I don't want, you know, the government getting involved if I'm going and having a traditional pregnancy and I've been consuming cannabis at my discretion or because a professional had, you know, suggested it or whatever the case may be. And again, I can kind of assume what the answer will be. It's discretionary, it's situational, but it's a heartbreaking story because the guy basically was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help my wife. CPS is like literally threatening to take our child. She's in the hospital, just gave birth and we're having, you know, so the happy moment, I've got my baby. It's ma'am, you failed a drug test and we need to talk about it. And I'm again, as someone who's projecting that this period of life coming up and knowing that there's more women out there who are having these same questions when it comes to cannabis consumption, the medical side of things, it's, I don't know how you professionally handle that. And if there's any grace or pass because you have a medical card in a legal medical state. You must have a medical card in a legal medical state. Absolutely. But they give you that because remember- CPS is going to be funded a state or county agency. It is not a federal entity. So they are going to have to follow state law. A state entity is going to have to follow state law, cut and dry. So you've got to have that card. That is your protection. We do. In fact, we have form letters, templates that are approved by the Duber lawyers that people take back to court that support. You know, if their card isn't enough for the court as proof, we have a template letter, we write individual letters. So they do hold up. It depends. Basically, it's the jurisdiction. If your employer is federal, your employer has no choice, but it's federally illegal. If your employer is a state employer, they have to follow state law. If your employer is a mom and pop shop, they probably are not going to want to get in that legal quagmire of federal versus state laws. And so what we're seeing as a trend you're seeing in states where it's been around a while that employers are doing now what's called a four test panel instead of a five drug test, the drug standard drug of abuse test panel and THC is being taken off. As you know, the other complicating factor is even if you use no marijuana, no THC, but CBD helps you and you use it over the counter, you're going to test exactly positive as well. So that's pretty unfortunate. So I like hearing the four drug panel. I like hearing that, you know, that mom and pops are doing okay. I know one of the big box stores chains across the country, you know, every employer has an FMLA form. One of them's got a medical cannabis form that the patients come back and say, we need this filled out. And so it's, and basically, you know, we put on it. The patient was advised not to operate heavy machinery or work on the cannabis, you know, the basic common sense things. So you're seeing it make progress. I can tell you that Arizona is not a duper state, but Arizona has it the best in black and white in their state law that unless they're something to the effect that if you're not, as long as you're not a federal employer, if you and an employer in the state of Arizona, you may not terminate your employee purely for having a medical cannabis card. Wow. Go Arizona. Yeah. So different states have little niches that they've got in there. And then Nevada has something really good too. However, I just got that earlier this week from a patient and I've not been able to personally read it, but I was impressed. So again, times are changing, things are coming, going in the right direction. Mississippi, on the other hand, has the best protection for gun rights, mm-hmm. which again brings always brings a question to us, federal versus state kind of thing. And so Mississippi put it in their law in black and white. So these are common questions, all three sets, the pregnancy and, you know, the employment, the, you know, The employment is a common one. And the other reason that many people kind of, you know, you mentioned the mom and CPS, a lot of licensed professionals get their card because if they are audited or whatever, they've already got it on the front end. 
Yeah, it's obviously a sensitive topic, but as you shared, it's consistent and popular because these are, you know, general questions. We procreate. And so at some point, somebody somewhere is going to want to wonder how that's going to interact with their cannabis consumption. For the most part, we all have an employer or if we're blessed to be self-employed, like my team, you're welcome. I don't drug test you, you know, for right (laughs) reasons. Uh, But I certainly did have an employer at one point where they knew if they drug tested their team that they would lose half their staff. But obviously it was their discretion as a private business, whether they wanted to do that or not. And I think I'm only seeing it hopefully... I think it's moving more towards the positive side. I think because we're having open conversations about it. And unfortunately, I think because examples are being made, we're fixing things. Like we're working through some of these pain points. So it is unfortunate. Like when I hear the stories about CPS getting involved, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I hope it goes favorably for you in that situation, right? But I'm hoping the people that are interacting with it, the state entity that's having to deal with it, they're learning, you know, Maybe a mom is using CBD is not so much a problem as the person who is maybe not pregnant, who's actually dealing illicit drugs, you know, focus your energy where it actually needs to be focused. And I think that's just the unfortunate thing. But that cannabis is a part of right now. It's just, it's in that nebulous, it's still a scheduled drug. So we're going to treat it like a drug, but it's also being sold in your, you know, local gas stations, Walgreens, dispensaries, whatever. So it's like, it also becoming a little bit more accessible. You mentioned a couple of the states that you're operating in. I want to turn just now. I know we've obviously been talking a lot about your experience and how that applies to Duber, but about Duber specifically now, what states are you operating in and what are you noticing around, I guess, variations between those states? Is it pretty common from a a patient perspective? Is it pretty common from a, not referral, but what you can prescribe perspective? Again, is it CBD, THC, you got your tincture, you got your edibles. Are you prescribing smokables? What's your opinion on smokables medically and bioavailability wise? Because I think I asked somebody that question a while and I actually got to do some work with stores in Bickel, which they are a German-based brand. And they are, Germany is a medical and they're the medical approved device. Now, herb vaping is obviously different than combustion, but I'm, I'm just trying to pay attention and see and learn, you know, what do you think? Do you prescribe all these things? And are your patients asking for things that are you're seeing consistent state to state? Or is there a lot of variability happening? Well, the funny thing is I didn't, I habitually correct people using the term prescribe, but I did not for you because Texas is one where that is the language. But in general... Yes, I have a prescription, unfortunately, not an actual card. In general, um, because it's federally illegal, all the other states have adopted, or almost all of them use the term recommendation. Okay. And prescription is where those eggs shells. But in Texas, it's the opposite. So unfortunately, I hate that about our program. The first short answer is of the 38 states that have medical cannabis, all 38 have totally different laws. Our recommendations in general as a company, are to recommend the maximum permitted by state law because my philosophy is strong that it's such a giant range of safety and such a giant range of products. As I mentioned earlier, patient-centric. When the patient figures out those two, three things that work for them versus the next guy, it's amazing. So we never want to restrict them based on what they learned at the first day for the next 12 months. And most states, again, Texas for a while was six months, but most states are 12 months for an annual renewal. So in general, we permit all of it, CBD dominant, THC dominant, one-to-ones. We recommend all formats that are permitted by state law. Now, some states don't permit combustion. Some states don't permit edibles. There are 
different nuances that our doctors have to know in the states that they're practicing in. And the age-old consumption versus dryer vaping question that I get, you know, basically if I look at in, I look at it as inhalational, anything inhaled agent is going to kick in fast. And medically, if it kicks in fast, it's going to wear off fast. The opposite category are going to be your longer duration of action. So you're going to be your edibles, tinctures, topicals are going to give you hours of relief, but they're going to take hours to kick in. That's the give and take. Those are how I view the big categories. And I think people will have, you know, their favorites within them. Then you get, we're coming back to your, so I like people to have favorites in both. Then we come back to, okay, well, within this category, how do you choose your favorite of the smoking versus vaping? I really think it's personal preference. I think that vaping, you know, I understand the argument that combustion is you're lighting a fire and you're inhaling the products of combustion in addition to the products of your marijuana. And there are some products that are destroyed. So I understand that argument. That's not the ideal. And I understand why vaping is better because you take away the products of combustion when you're using a stores in Bickle and you're setting that temperature, you're optimizing your terpene profile, you're really getting quality product. So I see that advantage. But then I often have patients ask me, well, what's safe? Well, the reality is we believe vaping is very safe from what we've seen, but really it's only been out 10, 20 years. Right. We don't have a long-term follow-up. Smoking the flower, even with the combustibles from the 60s on, we've had hundreds of thousands of patients using it decades. We're not seeing increased lung cancer, strokes, or heart attacks in those patients. So again, we don't have concrete data, but we have reassuring. What I tell people is even if we find out another decade from now that vaping has some adverse effects, they must not be as severe if they're taking that long. And remember, the quantity that a marijuana you know, CBD user is inhaling by vape versus a nicotine vape user all day. We're going to see, we're going to get the data from that population first. So it's a little bit of gray zone. I, again, I support my patients with what works best because if you love the flower and you love smoking it, you're going to use less of it and more effectively than if I pigeonhole you to something you don't like. No, those are great points. And as you know, they have a little different effect. Yes, no, of course. I think it's my attempt at trying to obviously respect the medical professional side of the equation, but I think you've done a really great job of presenting it as, yes, you're a doctor. I'm not taking that away at all, but you're also not here to just, again, prescribe something to someone. You're really collaborative with the patient of what is going to work best for you. What is your preference? Because again, the guys that like, well, my doctor prescribed me an opioid. It must be good is just ridiculous, right? right? You can't just trust that because someone is in a white coat and they wrote you a script that it's automatically something that's beneficial for you. You're getting into you know, different doses and form factors and et cetera, whatever. You know this, right? So it's not that because you're a doctor, it's explicitly going to be the healthiest, the, you know, the right, not have any repercussions, not have any adverse effects because everybody is different. And so I appreciate right. that. And, and I totally acknowledge it. And unfortunately, um, I'm confronted with it every day of just, it's a great area, you know, you could do this or you could do that and figure out what's best for you, right? So it's not as, you know, again, I think people sometimes, and I'm sure you deal with it, especially from a patient perspective, more likely people that are your, that are interacting with you that are coming to you are a little bit more naive. They're like, is this legal? Am I going to get in trouble? I don't want to go buy it illicitly from my neighbor down the street. So I'd rather right. go through a doctor because it's trusted. I know that it's quality assured. I know that it's right. you know, being recommended exactly. to me by somebody with the, you know, understanding my specific need and and history and issues that I'm navigating through. And so I can imagine those people are a little bit more 
like seeking the recommendation, right? They're not going to necessarily know what they need right off the bat, or maybe they do. And so it's not fair to say a blanket statement, but just trying to communicate the exciting opportunity of what is happening with medical cannabis, as well as still the uphill battle that we have as a society because of the way that it is federally structured and because of the state-by-state rollout. Again, using Texas as the example, it's it was funny a couple of years ago. So this would have been like three years ago at this point, I, I would like make a map and I would explicitly like not put Texas as a medical state. I had to, you know, <laughs> California, Colorado, you know, Ohio, whatever. And then I didn't have Texas. And I guess somebody from Compassionate Cultivation followed me and was like, whoa, why do you not have Texas on there? I'm like, listen, just because you guys have a license to do this doesn't mean that you're an actual, you know, medical cannabis. It, it's I can't go in a dispensary. I can't just walk into a store and have choice. I'm relegated to three operators at the time. It was two. And it was just this very gatekeepy. I remember going and seeing the doctor and I knew more about cannabis than he did. And he didn't even, you know, ask to see any of my history and just was clearly signing a, you know, prescription away. And I was able to get my cannabis right then and there that day. And I was like, Oh, I got cannabis legally in Texas. Cool. So what happens if I get pulled over? He's like, well, you better have your prescription on you because you don't have a card and you're allegedly in DPS's system. And I'm like, so you're telling me that I have no proof that I'm actually a patient. I have to trust that this cop on the side of the road's computer is accurate. My name is in some system. And so to me, I'm like, I get it. It's all we got. And so if that's you know the category that you fall into of how you get your medicine legally, please, by all means, support it. Because I, I think it is, you, you mentioned too, it's a precursor. You need medical to open up recreation. And so I think we're just patiently waiting for that to happen in Texas. But final question, I love to ask my guests, what are you excited about? What's happening in your world that's coming down the pipeline? Specifically, you know, I like ending on a high note. So anything that comes to mind around future things for Duber, a particular state, part of your practice expanding, I'd love to learn what's going on. Well, what we're really excited about is, yes, we basically as a group of doctors took over and bought Duber and we're coming up on our one year anniversary. Um, we're girl doctors that own it, but we're really excited that the summer, you know, the opening of the different states and having them running was a gradual thing. And now we have, if you're looking at our website, our new bios are going up. We have really solidified a great group of doctors and we now have some nurse practitioners that are really doing great and they just started. So this summer has just been one of growth. And myself, I love to teach, as you can tell. I have now we're now we have enough other providers with me that are like-minded that I have more time to do podcasts like this. I've been going to cannabis conventions and speaking. And as I mentioned, the town halls, my future direction, I kind of alluded to it is my little baby is that I am trying to create the parallel societies that the newer states of Kentucky and Mississippi do not yet have because they are both very new cannabis programs and they both don't have very many cannabis providers. So I would love to be the leader and make sure that it takes the right direction. So we have doctors that do what we do. 